I know this is going to sound a little simplistic, but I, I think it's, it's not untrue. Very often what mental illness is, is regular thoughts and feelings that have sort of spun out of control in terms of their intensity or um, like they've become distorted. Hello, and thank you for joining me here on Hope to Recharge podcast, the podcast that's designed to break the stigma around mental health and to create some hope and inspiration and give some practical tips to those that are struggling with mental health, whether it's from personal stories to break the stigma or some advice from professionals in the mental health community. Whether you are struggling with mental health on your own or you know a loved one that is struggling, we are here to support you and to create a community so you you know you are not alone. The road to recovery can be difficult and challenging. At Hope to Recharge, we believe that in mental health, together is always better. I'm your host, Matana. Thank you for joining me here today. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp.com, the online platform for therapy. Are you thinking of starting therapy or are you in need of a new therapist? Go to BetterHelp.com and find the therapist that meets your need. You can access them from your phone, from your tablet, from your computer. No matter where you are in the world, no matter what time of day, you can find your therapist that fits your need. BetterHelp is giving us 10% off the first month. They are so affordable. Go check them out. BetterHelp.com forward slash hope to recharge. That's betterhelp.com forward slash hope to recharge. Gift yourself therapy. Go get yourself wellness. Hello, and thank you for joining me here today. Today I'm with Ellie Chevalis. <laughs> She's a very dear friend of mine, and I highly, highly respect her on so many levels. She is a psychotherapist, an author, a teacher, an educator, a mom, a traveler, a lover of life, an understanding person of life. She recently wrote a book, which I love and I highly recommend, Finding Your Horizon of Healthy Thinking, which we're going to discuss in this episode, specializes in her private practice in couples therapy, sexual therapy and sexuality. She'll go into it a little bit in depth if I'm not pronouncing it properly, but I feel okay pronouncing things not properly. She gives me the permission to do it. (laughs) And I am super honored to have her because as I said, I tremendously respect her knowledge, her education, the way she shows up in the world, the way she lives with authenticity to her beliefs, to things that she challenges in systems, and to her community and friendships and her motherhood and her practice. So I am super honored to have her. Thank you for joining me here today, Elisheva. What a wonderful introduction. Thank you, Matana. (laughs) And it was all true. (laughs) <laughs> and the feelings are quite mutual, actually, <laughs> except for a few little details of our, our different lifestyles. But other than that, it's a, it's a really beautiful friendship because I have very similar admiration towards you and all of your work and, you know, personally and professionally. So I'm really, really grateful to uh, to be doing this interview with you. Thank you. Thank you. Um, Elisheva, before we deep dive into many questions that I have already flowing in my mind. Can you just tell me what's the difference between a psychotherapist and a therapist? So a therapist could be any, you could be a physical therapist, a speech therapist, occupational therapist. Therapist just means someone who is in some way um, acting as a helper uh, for, for a person in whatever area they need help. Psychotherapist is the, the psyche, the soul, the spirit, the emotional, psychological self. So it's, it's usually going to be talk therapy and usually to do with thoughts and feelings, sometimes behaviors. So basically you're saying it's a sophisticated way of saying most therapists 
therapists that we go to are psychotherapists. Generally, when people in, in the vernacular, like colloquially, yes, colloquially yes. will say therapist, they yeah. mean a psychotherapist. Oh, unless okay. they say, oh, I'm going to my physical therapist because I broke my ankle or something. Yeah. Uh, okay. Okay. I, I yeah. thought that was like an uh, like a, a specific like psychoanalyzing, um, like my aunt does that, you know, so she does analy- Psychoana- psychoanalysis. Right. Yeah. So I thought that it was like something under that category. No, at one point you were allowed to call your legally allowed to call yourself a psychotherapist without a license. So a lot of people were, were saying I'm a psychotherapist regardless of credentials, but I think the regulations kind of crack down on that now. And if you're calling yourself any kind of therapist, then you need to have, uh, you know, the appropriate education and licensure. Okay. So I want to yeah. give the audience a background on how I came across you and your work and who you are. I moved to America eight years ago, 18 years ago, sorry, 18 years ago when I got married. And um, when I had my first child, Nahaliel, I started going when he was like three or four years old, I started going to more parenting classes, um, Bible education classes. I just found that I wanted to learn more. I had more time and um, I met you in so many of these community classes. And I remember telling, leaning over to someone after meeting you many times, but not really talking to you. And I'm like, who is this brilliant woman? She always has the greatest questions. At a certain point, I remember remember whose house it was, but I don't remember what we were studying there. And I'm like, why is she the student? She needs to be the teacher. (laughs) And I was like in awe of you. And I'm like, I don't understand why she's in the same class as me. I am a beginner. She is a leader. We should not be in the same place and that she should be giving <laughs> the classes and I should be listening. And then I found out that you grew up with my cousins and you went to the same schools as them and you were in the same community with them. And then I found out that your Mimi's very good friend, my audience knows who Mimi is from many conversations about Mimi. So, and then everything just came full circle. And then we learned that we both are in love with mental health and we took it to the next level of analyzing mental health and deep diving into it. So I uh, tell people that when our relationship got to a friendship relationship, I used to say to Ari, I wish I didn't know Elisheva as a friend so I can have her as a therapist. And I still say it. I remember that conversation. We were like, can you treat me? I'm like, no, because we're already friends. (laughs) Yeah. And there's just like, as much as we're like, we have, we're moms, we have a lot going on. We were very involved in community. We love what we do and we love our friends, but there's never enough time to analyze our thoughts. So I'm like, if I can just have my private time with Elisheva to just go through whatever is on my mind. And, but Elisheva is so kind and she always carves out time for my my questions that I just, my burning urges of questions that I need a time with Elisheva. So that's my background of how I met Elisheva. And, <laughs> and I'm so grateful. And people know that I'm an Elisheva like lover because I'm like, Elisheva says this, Elisheva said that. And I, I like, I, I respect you tremendously, not because, because of your knowledge so much that, uh, that tremendously, but because you live with truth to yourself, which is something very hard to do in our backgrounds. Do you agree with that? I do. I do. I think what you're, what you're describing is something that I've heard um, distinguished as the difference between knowledge and wisdom. 
Mm-hmm. You know, a person can have a lot of knowledge as like data information in, in his or her brain, but wisdom is sort of like the intuition and the and the the ability to apply the knowledge in a moral, ethical, ideological way and live a life that's designed to be in harmony with the values that are important to you. And I think that's one of the reasons that we get along so well is because that's the kind of intelligence that we gravitate towards, that we crave, you know, and that we try to sort of seek out from all of the data that's out there. You know, research is fascinating, but then what do we do with it? You know, how do we synergize? How do we integrate it into our lives? I think that's like the question that so many people are grappling with nowadays and that you and I love to, you know, chew on together. (laughs) But you have a one up on me because you have the data. You're like the Brene Brown (laughs) that did all the research and you have the data. So when I want to skip through the research, I just call Alicia and I'm like, okay, where is this written and why and how many sources and who backs it up? And (laughs) it's like typing into Google. We always have a a joke in our house that I, you know, with the Android phones, you could say, okay, Google, uh, how many stars are in the sky? I, I, we joke that I do with Ari. Okay, Ari, what is the da 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 da? So I do that with Alicia. Okay, Alicia, where is the source for? (laughs) Well, yeah, that's quite a compliment. (laughs) But you you really did, you really did the work and you write about it in the book about your love to knowledge and how you always loved reading and knowing and um, deep diving into facts. And it was your passion. And it's beautiful that you were able to take your passion and develop it into a career and to serve others that don't have the ability that you have. You have a gift. You really have a gift of acquiring knowledge. And you take that gift and you help the world, especially me, with that gift, but sharing that knowledge that you acquire and you love it. So you do it on a deep level. So we're very, very lucky to have you. And uh, I'm grateful that you're here. I want to discuss in this episode your book, Finding the Horizon. Did, did I say it right? Finding? Yeah, the, the book is actually called Find Your Horizon of Healthy Thinking. Okay. But it's about finding your horizon. So that works too. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So um, okay. I want to give the audience a background before we get into the book of why you became a therapist. What was besides the fact that your father is in the health world? He's a therapist also, right? Yes. He's a psychologist. Yeah. He's a psychologist. Which is a type of thing. Right. Yes. Okay. So he's a psychologist, a very top-notch psychologist, not just a an average. And besides that, what was Elisheva's calling to therapy? Thanks. So I actually mentioned this in the book that I found an essay that I had written in, I think, second grade. And it's one of those, like, what I want to do when I grow up. And it said, when I grow up, I want to be a mom and a teacher and a writer and a therapist. So I was one of these kids who, from a young age, had a clear picture of what I wanted to do. And I don't know if I wanted to go into those fields because my parents were already very active in education and psychology and community work or, you know, something that I grew up surrounded by, I'm sure that uh, impact as well, but not all my siblings did that. So I I think it's sort of a combination of nature and nurture um, and also having certain kind of personality. I remember in high school, we were having a sort of a philosophical discussion in one of our classes. And I was, I sometimes get a little animated and contentious. And uh, the the teacher called me over afterwards and he said, you know, Elisheva, you have a critical mind and um, it's a gift, but be careful with it. And at the time I thought it was sort of a, you know, of a criticism. (laughs) I thought it was an insult. And, um, and I, and he he was, he was, you know, sort of censuring me, but, but I think that the word critical is an interesting word because in relationships, we don't want to do a whole lot of criticizing. But when we say that information is critical, we mean it's vital. It's really important. And so being, 
having someone who has a critical mind who thinks in a in a an analytical way is in fact a, a blessing and a curse and it sort of depends like how it's applied and context and what you do with it i remember when i was applying to colleges you had to write like this personal statement which like what do you know about yourself when you're 17 already you know how much life mm-hmm. have you lived so i remember i, I wrote something called um, my journey from the intellectual to the interpersonal and talking about how as a young kid i was a little weird i was like one of those like brain in the clouds kind of kids i like to read a lot and i liked information and i didn't always like pick up on all the social cues and i had to learn very intentionally how to create relationships how to build friendships that was something that didn't come as naturally to me as it did to some of my friends as a, as a child and so that was something that I had, that I had to work at and as a uh, middle schooler you know i think a lot of kids especially girls kind of like struggle with social identity in middle school and uh, sort of figuring out like how to uh, synthesize being someone who is a learner an asker of questions someone who is genuinely more curious and at home with books and um, trying to pursue information but also who who is learning the importance of interpersonal connection and how to create that in a functional healthy appropriate kind of way and i think in a certain sense my life has followed that theme mm-hmm. because my first career was um, i got to do all those things you know a mom and a teacher and a therapist and a writer i'm very fortunate that I was able to do the things that I wanted to do. Uh, and as a teacher, I, I love giving over education. I love standing in a classroom and, and getting to know my students and um, interacting with colleagues doing research. But what I started to learn after about a decade of teaching was my favorite part of teaching was the relationships, was getting to know other students, getting to know other teachers, uh, interacting with families that I came to know through the field of education. And I would spend so much time after the classroom interacting with with my uh, colleagues and my students that my husband even said to me, he's like, you know, maybe you just should do that for a living. (laughs) And um, yeah. And so then I went back to school and I got my master's and my degree happens to be marriage and family therapy. And I was able to sort of still, I, I still view myself as an educator. I still get to lecture and supervise and write and teach, but I feel like instead of just teaching sort of the intellectual, hypothetical, theoretical knowledge, um, I get to roll up my sleeves and learn about people and how to help them apply moral and psychological information in ways that hopefully will um, make their lives better. That's extremely fulfilling. So at second grade, I remember reading that and I'm like, does she remember that she wrote that piece of paper? Is she like moving with that piece of paper everywhere she moves and remembers and looks at it every few years to see that she's really applying her dream or it happened to have just popped up after years and years and like, oh my God, at, at second grade, I manifested my dreams <laughs> and like I put it, I put my energy into the world <laughs> for it to happen? Like second grade is early to know what you want. Yeah, I think it's a combination. I have a lot of clutter, so I can go years without seeing <laughs> without seeing papers. But the truth is it was pretty consistent. You know, like maybe there was a year here and there where I was thinking about, I don't know, maybe I should go to medical school or maybe, you know, but right. really throughout, maybe I was into journalism at one point, but really throughout the theme of childhood and adolescence and even early adulthood, those were always the things that I was interested in. So I don't know if I remember writing that essay per se, but I remember as you know, when you're a kid, how many times do people ask you, what do you want to do when you grow up? You know, people ask you that all the right. time. And it was always something along those lines, generally. So it, it was pretty consistent wow. to my personality. It's amazing that in second grade, you knew that you were good at writing. You knew that you would want to be a teacher. You knew that you wanted therapy. Therapy is such a... You ask an average second grader, they don't even know what therapy is to know that you want to be a therapist. Like, I think that you were very advanced for your, for your years. And <laughs> well, that was incredible. also having a dad in the field. <laughs> <laughs> but it's incredible. It's really, it's really incredible to see how you wrote it down and it really came to life and the importance of, of um, writing things down because it, it attracts your energy. I really believe in that. And that's really amazing. And 
you went into couples therapy because you like understanding relationships. Sort of. I guess, I guess that would be a beautiful way to put it. And it's certainly true now. I actually went into couples therapy because when I was going back to school to become a therapist, I knew I wanted to be in, in, uh, in, in the field of psychology in some way. And I was trying to decide which degree to do. And I had a friend who was a year or two ahead in this program, in this field. And we were debating between doing a PsyD, which is a doctorate of uh, philosophy, some sort of philosophy, doctor of philosophy to become a therapist, or some sort of master's social work, mental health counseling. And she found this marriage and family therapy degree. And she said, Alicia, you should do this because it was convenient. It was close to home, not very uh, intellectual reasons. Um, and it's, it's much more interesting than social work because she had explored all of the courses. And I just sort of followed her. I said, yeah, okay, you know, you did the research, I'll, I'll follow you. So uh, it was kind of serendipitous. So I, I did this degree. It was, in fact, a very interesting course of study. It's very relationally based. Mm -hmm. And then when, you're, when the letters after your name say LMFT, Licensed Marriage and Family Therapist, you end up seeing a lot of couples. So I do see individuals too. But at any given time, I would say about half or more than half of my caseload is couples. And uh, within the couples, uh, I ended up with this accidental specialty in sexual dysfunction, which mm -hmm. I never went looking to do couples work. I never went looking to do uh, work on sexuality, but sometimes things just come your way and uh, you learn on the job. And so I pursued postgraduate training and supervision and really learned how to get involved with that work. And it's become a, a passion and something that I'm very grateful. And it's very gratifying. You know, I work with people who are very motivated and it's a, it's a wonderful thing to see relationships block and when, they, when people are willing to uh, you know, roll up their sleeves and do some good work. And you're the, the core instigator and the, the toolkit that they have to actually get that to the point that they want to get to. That's really gratifying and so special. <laughs> it's, really, it's really special. And it's, a, it's, really, it, it's something I think that really a person can say, wow, I'm living with purpose. Because you're not only changing their individual life, them as couples, or them if they have children, or and the effects that the children have in their society, it's a ripple effect. So it's you, you might change one person's thought, but the the effect is is tremendous. You write in the book that you did it as your fortieth birthday gift. Um, were you thinking about it for a while to write this book? Was it? ponder, was it cooking in your mind? This is what I'm going to write about. And was it a tool that you acquired over years that you said, I, I'm so good at this tool. I acquired it. I know it well. I'm going to share it. It's a good question. So the, the book was a 40th birthday present to myself. I had mm -hmm. started a practice years earlier and people sometimes say, how long did it take to write the book? And I'll say, well, technically from when I really kind of open the Word document till I hit publish, it was probably, I would say about a year and a half, maybe a little closer to two years. But like you said, the, the information was acquired over many years before that. When I was in graduate school, I remember they, they taught us about something called narrative therapy, which is very popular in Australia. It wasn't as well known in the United States, although I think it's, you know, with the emergence of neuroplasticity, um, and positive psychology on the scene. I think narrative therapy has sort of insinuated its way into our continent as well. Um, and I'm very happy about that because I love narrative therapy. Mm -hmm. And so when I was learning about narrative therapy, you know, sometimes you learn something and you're like, oh, that's mine. Yep, that's for me. Yeah, so it clicks. I had, it clicks, exactly. It just kind of made sense. It went with my personality. It went with my way of thinking. It went with my philosophy on how to uh, interact with experience. And so I started to read up on narrative therapy and I was using it very naturally, very organically in my own thought processes. And uh, so I was saying how I had that like critical mind. When you have a critical mind, then sometimes you end up criticizing a lot, like criticizing yourself, noticing things that are you know not necessarily the most complimentary thing about the world and other people. I kind of believe that our 
paradigm for things is a triangle of relationships. It's a relationship with ourself, a relationship with other humans, and a relationship with the universe or God if you're religious, but it, it could be just spirit, you know, the concept of the world at large. And that triangle of relationships, they interplay off one another. And so when we can find the right language, the right phraseology, the right narrative to work with when we're telling ourselves the story of these three relationships, then we become empowered. Then when we, we become inspired, we become filled with hope and possibility. But when those more critical messages where we start picking things apart and overanalyzing, not in a good way, uh, that what's wrong with myself, with other people, with the world, we can very quickly spiral downward into uh, feelings of frustration and hopelessness and that negative aspect that kind of weighs us down and holds us back. And it was something that I was very self-aware of. That was something that I had a tendency to do. And because I noticed it in myself, then it was something that I could pick up on easily enough other people. And narrative therapy and the notion of neuroplasticity, the notion of being able to rewire our minds and train our brains to think along different pathways was an incredible feeling. You know, the idea of like sort of like Carol Dweck's mindset theory, you know, that mm -hmm. we don't we don't have to be stuck in one way of doing things, that there are ways to improve and to change and skills that we can acquire so that our thoughts can be healthier, so that our feelings can be happier. And um, we can emit more, um, more helpful, hopeful, positive, and impactful energy for ourselves, for our relationships, and for the world at large. So that's how I got to narrative therapy. Um, I don't really remember why your question led me to that. but <laughs> No, I was asking you if you practiced it before you wrote, you said that you wrote this for your oh, yes. birthday. You call this book, Hack Your Thoughts, Improve Your Mind. Did this is this your hack that you came up with alone with all the stuff that you studied? And how long are you hacking this on yourself and your clients that you said, okay, this hack work, I want to share it with the world? Yes. So the idea of utilizing um, our thoughts in order to create better reality is not my own innovation. That's something that's, it's not even uh, unique to narrative therapy. It's really something mm -hmm. that's very deep, has very deep spiritual roots that I think even predated psychology. The notion of horizon of healthy thinking, that's my own sort of trademark. One one of the ways that I take care of myself spiritually and psychologically is that I walk on a beach. We both live near the beach, mm -hmm. on the same beach actually. Mm -hmm. And um, and it's it's one of the ways that I like to recharge, especially when the weather is beautiful. And so when, sometimes when I would meditate, I would look out at the horizon and there was just something super, very healing, very serene and tranquil about looking at the horizon. And this an, this analogy just sort of like seeped into my consciousness. It was something that I was sort of imbibing through nature. And the idea is I have these pictures on my wall and I talk about this in the book that there are sort of three three paradigms. And one of them is the idea that we can be sort of submerged in negative emotions. Sometimes there are, it's sort of like if you picture a whirlpool, like the water swirling or crashing down and pulling someone under. When someone is suffering from anxiety or depression or any other uh, overload of negative affect, then it can feel like they're drowning. And um, that's when I call like below the horizon. And you notice this in yourself, you know, what we feel it, you know, when we're feeling like we're drowning in some sort of anger, sadness, worry, uh, and, and it's, it's like sort of smothering us. So that's when we're, we're below our horizon of healthy thinking or healthy function. Then there's, uh, there's a picture I have of, of a boat, a sailboat, sort of just like tracing the horizon, bobbing along on the waves. And I use that as an analogy to relate to how we interact with reality when it just is what it is. We're not drowning in it. We're not uh, really being proactive in any way. It's just it's just there, you know, and, and we probably spend most most stable people spend a lot of time in that space. And then I have this picture of a seagull. 
And the seagull picture is the one that's featured on the cover of the book. And the seagull is rep- represents being able to triumph and being able to look above the horizon and sort of say, hey, there's situations that are going on, right? Whether they're internal to me or interpersonal or just a, something that's going on in life, a context of some sort. And I want to engage with it from a place of either acceptance or empowerment right? So actually it could be acceptance or action. Empowerment could be either one. So the idea is that basically there are three different ways to relate to any reality, whether it's a reality within ourselves or a reality outside of ourselves. And those three ways are either in a way that is unproductive or counterproductive, a way that is neutral where we're just, you know, it's kind of like just letting it be or a way that is helpful, productive. And I specifically don't say positive. I say productive or helpful. The helpful way or the the productive way of interacting with it could be coming to a place of acceptance, or it could be being proactive, sort of like the serenity prayer, knowing whether to just figure out a way to, you know, work around what exists or whether we can like roll up our sleeves and change what exists. Either one of those is good. So those are, those are sort of the three ideas. And obviously the goal is we want to spend as much time as possible functioning above the horizon of healthy thinking, right? Because the, the more healthy our thoughts are, right? And, and this doesn't necessarily have to be a situation that's a happy situation because happy situations almost naturally lend themselves to feeling above the horizon. So usually we're going to need to apply these kind of techniques when the situations that arise are more challenging. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, you and I both like words. So, uh, you know, being an author gives you the authority to Mm -hmm. manipulate the plot. And Mm -hmm. even when the, the elements of the plot are somewhat limited, so we can still manipulate the language, the diction, the descriptives of where we take the plot. Because, you know, five people could tell the same story, but they're all going to use slightly different adjectives, slightly different, you know, zooming in on details of the story, take away a different moral. And so when I can do this for myself, or I can help my clients do this, look at the story of their lives and say, hey, how can I make this story nicer for me or for the people around me? How can I make this story live more in harmony with what I want my life to look like? We try to sort of zoom in on the elements that they can take more authority over by becoming the authors of their own narrative. So that's the gist of narrative therapy. That's the gist of the horizon of healthy thinking. There's one more way of telling a story that I actually caution uh, my clients and my readers about. And that's what I call, um, I actually got this phrase from a client, pathological positivity. Um, Some people call it toxic positivity. And, uh, And that's like sort of like the phony version of like, it's all good. It's okay. It's not a big deal. You know, the trivializing uh, or the jumping ahead, the skipping steps to sort of like spiritualize or sublimate and make like things are okay when they're not so okay. Because that looks nice on the surface. And that actually is something that's celebrated in certain circles. But I don't think that that's ultimately so helpful because it's a, it, it sometimes involves a betrayal of one's emotional self. So and kind that, of living in denial. Exactly. Exactly. Denial is one of the cognitive distortions that we talk about in the Horizon mm-hmm. book. There's a bunch of different like cognitive distortions that people, you know, sometimes trivialize. You know, they make their problems smaller. Sometimes they'll catastrophize, make them bigger. Mm-hmm. And the goal of of Horizon living, of healthy living, is don't obsess, right? Don't catastrophize or dramatize. Don't repress, right? Don't trivialize, make it too small. Just assess, notice what it is, and then process. Then figure out, okay, what can we do about it? I like these like cutesy word things. I love um, it. Can you say that again? <laughs> I, oh my God, that was like, wow, that's art. Okay, say that again. Things. Don't obsess, don't repress, just assess, then process. It's such a, tw- uh, a, a mind twister, a tongue twister, and art. It just rhymes, yeah. <laughs> it, but it's so perfectly... Um, describes a thought, an emotion, what we need to do with it. And we need all of them. 
we need all of them in order to be in the right space. And it's so beautiful. Did you come up with it? So I, I was just discussing this with some colleagues yesterday. So I think I came up with it. <laughs> but, but then I'm always scared because, you know, we learn from so many people throughout the course of our lifetime. And I'm always worried that maybe I think I came up with something and really I heard it somewhere years ago and assimilated it as my own. But as far as I know, I came up with those words. But you can always Google it and see if anybody like, right, else quotes exactly. it. <laughs> maybe, maybe my Instagram post will come up. <laughs> But, uh, but, but the truth is, you know, nobody has the monopoly on wisdom. So even if I happen to have like the cute poetic language that, that like puts it. it together, the truth of the matter is this is just, this is just wisdom. You know, you and I happen to belong to the same religion. So, you know, we speak that language, but right. the truth is many religious systems and many spiritual right. systems, not only religious systems, um, have, have, uh, you know, traditions of wisdom. Right. Um, you know, and being able to be, you know, sort of like Zen is one way of looking at it, being able to be at peace with reality as it is, which doesn't necessarily mean being disempowered, but, right. you know, coming from a place of peacefulness rather than contentiousness allows us to, to sort of conserve the strength that we need to take action, you know, and, and, and construct the lives that we want. So what I'm understanding is that you came up with this theory for yourself as a critic mind, uh, as a mind that likes analyzing things things, figuring things out before they digest it. And you said, you know what, maybe this will help me with life, the way I approach relationships, situations. And then you're like, oh, wow, I can develop this into a hacker, my clients. And the book is full of stories that you talk about um, different scenarios from your clients and how you could break it up. It's very, it's a very easy read and very practical read. And and then you decided, okay, now I see that it's really working. Like the way we show up and the story that we tell ourselves is really in our minds. So let me give this tool to others now that I, I figured it out. Let me share this treasure with the world because it's really something that we can, it's easy. Once we understand how to break it down, it's really, really easy. And I love the example you give what happened with your husband. So I want you to share with the audience that that first of all, what happened with your husband and his wellness, his physical wellness and the three different doctor scenarios. And it's such a, just makes it so easy to understand the three different ways of presenting something. It's interesting because I use that example. It, the, the, story, the basic story is true. My husband was diagnosed with a, a very advanced form of cancer when he was in his early thirties and he was in otherwise what we thought, you know, perfect health. So it was quite shocking. I was pregnant with my fourth child. So it was like very overwhelming for us in, in a lot of ways. Uh, the, the example with the three doctors is hypothetical. That didn't actually happen. I was no, I know. It. I know. Oh, yeah, know. Yeah, 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 yeah. In the interest of being true. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. I, I almost wish I had the book open to the right page so I could read it out. But basically it was, I, I used three different ways of a doctor giving over a diagnosis to a patient. And in the first example, which is below the horizon, it, the doctor is sort of saying like, this is bad. This is really, really bad. You know, the prognosis is not good. You know, we're going to have to do really painful, difficult treatments and uh, sort of that gloom and doom message, which would have been accurate. You know, it was very serious. It was very scary. But it's a you know very poor bedside manner and uh, and, and a very disempowered un, unhappy way to tell that story. The next the next example I give is the doctor coming and saying, "Okay, we got to talk. Uh, we need to come up with an aggressive plan of treatment. This is serious. It's something that we need to take very seriously, and we need to treat immediately." And uh, and set up a treatment plan. You know, and and so that will also be scary, but it's not as it's not as uh, intimidating or overwhelming as the below the horizon. It's just sort of giving you the information as is. 
right? But as we all know, you know, part of being a good doctor is being able to hold space for a patient's psychological reality as well. And fortunately, the surgeon that ended up saving my husband's life and most of the medical professionals that we dealt with along the way were more above the horizon. And they came along and they said, listen, we're not sugarcoating this. This is bad, <laughs> but <laughs> um, you're young, you're healthy, you're in good care. We have a great team and we're going to set you up for the most po- the best possible success. And they explained the medication, they explained the surgery, they explained the radiation, and um, and they really held our hands along the way. So it wasn't like all fun and games, like, oh, don't worry, we'll just pray and it'll be better, you know, like and there was a lot of prayer involved, don't get me wrong. Um, but it wasn't, we weren't, uh, we weren't sort of doing the, the denial or the, the toxic positivity version. We were doing like the empowered way of looking at it and saying, hey, this is a tough situation, right? We're not going to pretend that it's like easy, but at the same time, there are different ways that we can engage with it and we can either let it beat us up and knock us down, or we can see what we can do to try to let it allow it to teach us lessons and make us stronger, which, you know, some days we did better than others. <laughs> it was hard. It was messy. It was not an easy time. Um, but thank God he's, he's well now and we're very grateful. We learned a lot. And do you feel that that doctor that gave you that empathy, but facts gave you courage to fight? He was wonderful. He was really wonderful. He was great. He was great. He he and my husband had like a cute camaraderie going on. Both of them are named Daniel. They're both of them have the same birthday. And my husband emails him every year on their birthday to like let him know how he's doing and wish him happy birthday. Um, so they they have a cute relationship. That's uh, nice. But it but it makes a difference. And I remember because we interacted with so many different other professionals, different nurses and doctors in the course of that experience. And you're so raw, you're so vulnerable, mm-hmm. you know, you're in such a, a sensitive place when you're running in and out of hospitals so, so often, and it's so scary. And I remember the ones who would give you that little like extra squeeze on your hand or encouraging oh. smile, that reassurance, it means the world, you know, it's, it's that I, I kind of wanted to like go back and hug them, you know, because right. it makes a difference. And the, there were a few, I mean, there were a few in far between who were like a little more grumpy, a little less helpful like it you know it, it also you feel it more acutely when you're open and well like that so i'm particularly grateful that most of our experiences were more uh you know were more positive for the most part the facts were the same facts daniel had the same tumor with the the two other doctors that were not real in the book that you described, yeah. um, the facts were the same fact. It was what story we are told and what story are we able to process in order to dig down into our ability to heal, to move forward and not to escalate it to a place that we are basically depleted with energy or hope to actually try to heal. And since you're a therapist, I in the book, I remember, I don't remember exactly the scenario, but you re- I remember you discussing a woman that was discussing her anxiety or panic attacks, her emotions, and she, you gave her um, a list of words to put it, put down of what, what happens when she gets into anxiety and and how to process it. So let's walk through that. Let's give a little bit of a, because we deal with mental illness on this podcast, I want to go through that scenario. And when someone is going through a panic attack or a severe depression, how do we break it down in our mind? How do we apply the exercise that you tell you talk about in this book? Okay. So in terms, there are a bunch of different exercises. I think the one that you're talking about specifically was called calibrating descriptives. Is that the one where you breathe through different gradations of Yes, 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 yes. Okay. 
Yes. Okay. So um, that one, it, it looks like this. So a person who's, listen, if a person's having a full blown panic attack, then really, I just want to go on record as saying that that person really should come up with a strategy with his or her uh, psychotherapist, individual therapist or psychiatrist, because panic attacks can be really, really scary. But if a person has the presence of mind to utilize a narrative therapy technique, meaning they have a, a certain amount of control where they can say, okay, you know what? I got this. Let me figure out how I can breathe myself out of it. So what it is, what I, I've asked clients to write down on a piece of paper, an index card or on their phone, five to seven different adjectives describing the feeling that they're struggling with. So if it's panic, we're going to talk about fear. If it's depression, we're going to talk about sadness. So let's say uh, with, with the panic, so let's say the, the strongest, and it's going to be subjective because to, to different people, the language is going to mean different things. So that's why it's important to have each person come up with his or her own list of adjectives. But so let's say the person says, okay, I'm having a panic. I'm bugging out. I'm freaking out. Out, right, like let's say freaking out is the is the is the strongest language they could come up with, right? And then they do some deep breathing in through the nose, out through the mouth, and they say, "Okay, I'm terrified," right? Because let's say that's taking it down a notch from them. Then they would say, "Okay, I'm feeling panicky," right? Panicky maybe feels a little bit less than terrified, right? Then another breath, then they'll say, "I'm feeling anxious," okay? And it, it's almost like you kind of like you see each with each, each set of breathing that they do the adjective goes down a notch in intensity. Then you take it down to, I feel stressed. I feel worried. I feel concerned. And concerned is like, it's like you can almost picture turning down the volume mm -hmm. on the intensity of the feeling. Because really in a certain sense, I know this is going to sound a little simplistic, but I, I think it's, it's not untrue. Very often what mental illness is, is regular thoughts and feelings that have sort of spun out of control in terms of their intensity or um, like they've become distorted, you know, they've become either too loud or they've become corrupted and they've taken on a life of their own. But every person, every stable, healthy, happy, well-adjusted person sometimes has thoughts that they'll say like, oh, wow, that was a dark thought or that was a scary thought or that was a little out there, right? But, uh, but someone who's in a healthy headspace, who's not currently suffering from any sort of mental illness has a natural filter to sort of say like, oh, that was a scary thought, but like, I'm not there, I'm okay. You know, I mm -hmm. kind of like make that distinction between me and the thought or me and the feeling. Right. Um, you know, we don't have to believe every thought that we have, right? right? And we don't have to let our feelings be the boss of us. But right. sometimes when somebody is in a, in a storm of mental illness, they have to like be more mindful, more intentional, exert more effort to give their mind power over those thoughts or feelings. So that the calibrating descriptives is, is one way to do it with the actual language where you sort of breathe. And uh, I sometimes say the brain is sort of like a, like a television, you know, mm. where, you know, if you're watching a, a sad movie, so you're crying, but if you don't want to be crying and watching a sad movie, you can turn on a comedy show and you can laugh, or you right. can turn on a, a baking show and learn how to bake, you know? Right. <laughs> so it's kind of tuning into the right channels. So it's basically a acquiring, um, noticing first step is noticing. Okay. Yeah. I am in a bad place now. Okay. Yes. I have a choice. Yeah. I have a choice to shift it a little bit. Let's break it down. Let's tune in. I, I, and I, I, for someone that suffered so much with panic attacks, one of the tools that I acquired was checking in with myself and saying, is this real? Is this real? And going through and really talking myself through the breaths and the power of a of a breath is is so incredible. Incredible, yes. Yeah. And and the energy that it gives us and the thought process that we have through breathing and breaking it down really just lowers that screaming in our mind. I can't do it. I can't do it. I'm freaking out. I can't. 
I'm drowning. By working this exercise that you write in this book, it's so easy to actually lower that volume in our mind. And we don't, we can practice it with a therapist, but once we understand it, it's a tool for life or any situation, even in relationships or in in situations that are caught us off guard and we're like, okay, what was that? We could be just in a supermarket and seeing somebody and judging them versus you talk about this in the book a lot about judgment, just judging people and how it triggers us. Because when we judge, we're basically tapping into something that we uh, thoughts that we are born with or we have or we're used to and we're judging without really knowing. And it triggers us sometimes to a very negative place. So using this tool can really um, tell a different kind of story and a story that will matter for to us moving forward. Now, you talk about the difference between positivity, healthy, right? The yes. healthy thinking, and you spoke about it a few minutes ago. That was something so huge for me in the book, the difference between positivity and healthy thinking. We are not meant to always think positively because it's not everything is positive. I want you to go into that and, and talk about that, the difference and how to show up for ourselves and for others. Yes, yes, for sure. So what I was saying before that example of like skipping steps or jumping ahead to the point where you're sort of betraying your authentic belief or experience is when we're being unhealthy, like phony positivity. So um, if something really tough is going on and you didn't let yourself have the feeling of like, wow, this is really tough. And you just be like, it's not a big deal. It's okay. Right. It's, it's, it's fine. We'll get, we'll, we'll get, we got this. Right. So, but you're saying it, but you don't necessarily feel it to be true. So that's going to come back to haunt you because you didn't allow yourself to be healthy and have the experience of what you need to have. So being healthy doesn't mean like sugarcoating everything and just sort of like Pollyanna saying everything is okay. Everything is all good. If that's not in fact how you really feel, there are people who just are gifted with a sunny temperament. And when they say it, they're not being phony. They really do have a higher threshold for cheerfulness and that's wonderful for them. But it doesn't work so well to to fake that. Uh, what what's better is to sort of like calibrate and take ourselves through the process and the stages of okay, so this is really hard. But you know, sometimes we can do well in a really hard situation. And so it's not like, let's say, imagine, I mean, this would be an extreme example, but imagine going to a funeral, right? And going over to the, to the relatives of the deceased and saying, you know, you know, there's no point in crying, right? Cause you're still alive, right? Everybody else is here. So like, you know, right. That right. would be a completely inappropriate place right. for positivity. Right. The healthy way to behave at a funeral is to cry, right? right. To feel the sadness, to mourn, to grieve, um, and to empathize with the people who are, you know, are have just lost a loved one. Uh, mm -hmm. And that's the healthiest thing you can do, even though no, no rational person would apply the word positive to that situation. Mm -hmm. So that's why I'm a much bigger fan of healthy than positive. And what happens, what ends up happening is when we commit to engaging with with ourselves, with each other, with circumstances in a healthy way, rather than exclusively, exclusively positive way, we, we allow ourselves to feel all the different feelings that are healthy mm -hmm. to have. And then once we've moved through them in a healthy way, it opens up the possibility for positivity more, more naturally, more organically. So that's what I mean by the difference between uh, that pos positivity versus healthiness. Um, there was also something else you mentioned before that I wanted to zoom in on. You said when, when we catch ourselves passing judgment, uh, what you talked about with metacognition, right? You didn't use that exact word, but it, what it is is sort of having a distinction between there's me and there's the thought that I'm having. There's me and there's the feeling that I'm having. So I have a thought and we call that the thought that just pops into your head naturally. We call that the auto thought. It's not a real word. I made that up, but it's an because it's an automatic thought. 
it pops mm-hmm. into your head. And sometimes I might not like the thought that I have. It mm-hmm. might be a thought that's mean about myself, about someone, right. someone else, about life, right? And so I don't have to naturally buy into that thought. If that thought were a car, I don't have to get in the car and drive off with it, mm-hmm. right? What I can sort of say is it was just a thought. But I didn't really like that thought. And so then I will have what I call a meta thought. A meta thought means like a thought about the thought. I'm, I'm noticing and analyzing the thought. Now, don't do this all day because you can drive yourself a little crazy. But you know, once in a while, just to sort of notice, okay, I, that was the thought that I had. I know that thought. It doesn't lead me anywhere good. So I'm just going to let that thought float on by because it doesn't really define me. And then sometimes we can have a replacement thought. So let's say to use the example that you gave, right? Somebody, I see somebody doing something that I disapprove of. Right. So my first thought is a judgmental thought, like, oh, they're such a not good person that they're, they're doing mm-hmm. that thing. Right. And then I think to myself, ooh, that was judgy of me. Right. I don't want to be mm-hmm. a judgmental person. Mm-hmm. Right. So that was the, the auto thought is that per- I don't approve of that person. Uh, meta thought is I noticed that I was being judgmental and that's not how I want to be. And then what we do is we say, okay, what do I want my replacement thought to be? Mm-hmm. And the replacement thought doesn't have to be something like, well, really they're amazing, right? Because that would be the phony positivity version. Mm-hmm. The, the healthy version of the replacement thought was, hey, I noticed that person doing something that is not in harmony with my values, but it's okay to disagree with other people and still hold them in esteem. I can still have respect mm-hmm. for the person even if I disagree with her behavior. Nice. And, and that's how we grow. You know, We sort of like rumble with these thoughts and feelings and challenge ourselves with them and just say, you know, how can I translate that thought or feeling into a healthier, more mature, more productive version of itself where I still get to have, I I don't have to pretend to agree with something I disagree with, but I can disagree in a more evolved, mature, uh, tranquil kind of way. I really like that. I, and I, as you were speaking, I was thinking that people that are more healthy thinkers are eventually the more positive people. It just, they go together because when you think properly, you show up, uh, when you're thinking healthily, you show up in a, from a healthier way, from a true way. And then when we usually nurture ourselves and we're connected to our thoughts and what triggers us, we show yeah. up in a better way. And then it's naturally more positive. I think that there's a big relationship between healthy and positivity, like a positive outcome of who we are, how we show up. I find that people with the more boundaries the more boundaries they have, the more positive they are. And we respect them. Yeah. And we respect them so much because they're leading with some kind of true value of themselves and, and healthy thinking versus, oh, if I, if I do this, that they, they might be angry. I, I, there's so much, uh, Byron Katie talks about this a lot, um, about breaking down the thoughts. What is this teaching me? Why is this thought here? Where is it triggering me? Like breaking down the thought and seeing really what is it telling me and coming out with, instead of anger, revenge, uh, frustration, hurt, learn from it. You're not saying get over it, learn from it, evolve from it. Is that correct? What, what I'm understanding? That sounds beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. Did you read about the uh, reversing the butt technique? No. Okay. So uh, you probably did because it's in the book, but it was, it, it was just like a paragraph or two. Okay. So the I mean, I don't is, remember. Yeah. Right, right. You don't remember. Right? Yeah. <laughs> That's probably a better way to ask the question, actually. Yeah. Um, so reversing the butt technique means, let's say you have a situation where something is a challenge and something else is a, a hope or a goal. Oh, right? you did that with the person that lived in a in a house that they was falling apart and they wanted to do the renovations, but it was a cheap, uh, an inexpensive house. I think, I think so. I think that was the example. <laughs> yes, I'm trying yes. to remember now. <laughs> okay, yes, 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 yes. Right. Um, but let's say, I'm going to use an example of something, let's say, very current, right? I remember when you decided you wanted to create a podcast. 
right? Mm-hmm. And you were and continue to be a very busy, productive person, right? This isn't mm-hmm. your day job, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> You're right. a mom with young right. kids, you have a job, you know? Right. And, um, and, and, I, and I'm sure that probably one of the thoughts that crossed your mind was something along the lines of, I really want to make a contribution to the world of mental health and spread awareness and knowledge for people, but it's time consuming. And I'm, I'm not sure how to go about fitting this into my busy schedule, right? Mm-hmm. So that's one way to look at it. But if you reverse the two clauses of that sentence, what it looks like is this. I'm a very busy person and I have a very packed schedule, but it's so important to me to Mm -hmm. be able to create a podcast where I can spread awareness about Mm -hmm. mental health. So I'm going to try to figure out a way to make this happen. So Mm -hmm. what happens is when we think in a limiting way, right? When we have those like limiting beliefs, what we, we do is we start with like, I wish I could, you know, get healthy, have a better relationship, be a better uh, employee, mom, be more ambitious, be cleaner, be neater, whatever, you know, whatever it is that we're working on, right? Whatever values we're trying to espouse, but, right? But there's some sort of obstacle in our way, right? And every life has a landscape of obstacles, right? This mm-hmm. is just part of being the nature of being human, right? So reversing the but technique takes the sentence. And instead of saying goal, but obstacle, we say obstacle, but goal, right? Oh. And so we acknowledge, right? And this is where, you know, healthy versus positive, right? Positive is just like, who cares about obstacles? Just focus on the goals. It's like, mm-hmm. no, no, that's not useful because we need to preempt and strategize around the obstacles, but keep our eye on the goal. Where the sentence lands is where we land. You know, mm-hmm. and so when you were saying before, like in the long haul, people who allow themselves the healthy boundaries, the healthy parameters of different feelings and thoughts that they need to have in the long term, they're going to be happier because they've cultivated a stronger threshold for discomfort. And we all know that discomfort is very often where growth takes place. And mm-hmm. so that's that's where it takes us. So that's, you know, reversing the butt statement is a really great narrative tool to empower ourselves to say, hey, look, you know, there's a challenge here, right? And this challenge might be internal or it might be external to me, but I know it exists. Nonetheless, there's something that's important that we want to achieve. And let's see how we can work around that. I like that. I like that a lot. It's such a powerful tool. Um, So you work with these, with this strategy with couples. I'm curious to know what happens if somebody's super motivated to use this strategy and they're using it on themselves and they work and they live with someone that's so disconnected from their emotions or self-help or understanding. And they just keep on getting triggered by the fact that the other, their loved ones or their partner could be even a child is so not connected to self-help and understanding and it keeps on coming up as a trigger can we work with this with this tool that you're talking about the three step the three step technique to actually break down our thought and be so like completely different thinkers and beings and still feel connected so I, I mean, look, I, I'm a little bit of a romantic on this one. I, I like to say the answer is yes. <laughs> I, and, and you and I are both people who have very different personalities from our husbands, you know, and manage to connect, you know, despite having different in- areas of interest. Right. Uh, but but I, I, I think, you know, case in point is it, it's more like I would even make it broader. I would say like, let's take something completely different. Let's say you have a couple where one spouse is very academic and the other one is, is less interested in intellectual pursuits or one is very spiritual, very religious. And the other one is like annoyed by that, right? Mm -hmm. So it's very common when two people are in a relationship, not only is it common for you to have different interests, but it's, it's almost like it has to be, right? We're different people. We're coming from different backgrounds, different personalities, different sensitivities, different trigger points. And so part of the challenge in creating connection and creating a beautiful relationship is finding those points of connection that work 
and figuring out how to navigate around other points that are, are unpleasant when they come up. Right. A healthy relationship is not a relationship where there's no conflict. That's like an unrealistic relationship. Right. A healthy relationship is one where there's a lot of good interaction, like a, a lot of loving connection, connection and support, and also a relationship that where they figure out a way to um, to negotiate around their areas of difference. So let's say you're taking something like mental health. Are you are you saying like in your example where one spouse is or one partner is? Uh, inherently healthier than the other, like one of them is suffering from mental illness or not even necessarily? Not even, not even that. That's my next yeah. question. I'm yeah. just saying somebody that's very self-motivated to improve their growth. life. Yeah, yeah. And one is just plateauing through life. Sure. Sure. So I, I think if a couple is coming to me and that's one of their issues where one of them, and, and again, like when you have a couple, like one of them is going to be more punctual than the other. One is going to, is going to be neater than the other. One of them is going to be more ambitious than the other. So in all these different areas of difference, we just have to find a way to have a meeting of the mind. So it's okay for one spouse to be more interested in personal growth and motivational material than the other. And, and, the, and to figure out why is the second spouse who's less or the second partner who's less interested getting triggered? Like, what is it about what the first partner is saying or doing that's getting on their nerves and grating on their nerves, helping them become aware of that metacognition, noticing what you're feeling when your partner starts talking in that way, what you're saying. Is it because your mother did that and it used to shut you down? Are you feeling lectured? Are you feeling condescended? Are you feeling threatened? You know, and so each relationship is going to have its own set of emotional needs and challenges that have to be taken into consideration. And it's not even so much about coming up with like, it's like a puzzle that has a solution as much as a piece of art that you need to sort of like find the right colors and shades and perspectives to make it, to make it beautiful, you know, because relationships are definitely more of an art than a science, even though they can be studied scientifically. Uh, but, but, you know, helping a couple communicate around these differences and this tension that comes up between them is much more important than whether we, you know, end up going to self-help lectures together or not, you know, which obviously I don't think you should do if one of the partners hates self-help lectures. Right, <laughs> the same right. way one, one spouse could be very into ball games and the other one not at all interested mm -hmm. in sports, right? Right. Do you feel that we could use this tool in order to have less conflict with spouses that trigger us? Definitely, definitely. There's a there's a technique. I don't think I talk about this in the book. Maybe this will be my next book. Um, there's a technique that I've developed with um with couples that I call rewrite the fight, where a couple will come in and they'll be bringing I love up that. Clearly, <laughs> <laughs> I like rhyming. <laughs> um, where they'll talk about the fight. Sometimes we'll actually do this in writing in a session, or I'll assign them to do it like between sessions, and they'll have this big blow up argument. And more often than not, the the content, the stuff, the uh, about the art that the argument was about is not necessarily what the big deal is. The big deal is the feelings that got hurt in the, mm. in, the, in, the in the course of the dialogue. Yeah. And and especially, I mean, I'm very fortunate in my practice. Most of the people I work with are really good hearted people who are intelligent and motivated. And so sometimes when I, when I ask them to sort of like zoom in and rewind back to the fight and say, if you could rewind back to that moment, it's a, it's a powerful challenge to do on, on ourselves, either in relationships or personally, if I could rewind back to that moment, how would I want to rewrite it? Right. Because we really can rewrite, we can't rewrite the past, our mental memoirs, but but history often repeats itself and the situation will present itself again. And being able to respond differently to the same trigger or stimulus is really what growth is all about, right? So say to the couple, okay, let's rewrite that fight, right? If, we, if you were like the best possible version of yourself in that moment, each of you was the best possible version of yourself in that moment, what would that argument have looked like? And usually the first time I suggest that, that uh, exercise to a couple, 
they're going to look at me like, I, I don't know, what would it look like? And then I'll, I'll sort of, you know, I can do that for them. I can give mm-hmm. them the words and say, well, you know, I think like knowing your personalities and, and your opinions and perspectives and sensitivities, I feel like the, the healthier way for you to have had that argument is to say ABC or XYZ. And often they'll look at me and say like, yeah, that would have been a better way to say it. <laughs> right. Right. Because <laughs> right. I try very hard to honor the integrity of their feelings and not right. sort of sanitize away the, the problem. Right. And, uh, and I'll say, yeah, you know, if you had said that, and I'll turn the other one, would you have felt validated? Yes. Would that have been true to your feeling? Yes. You know, more often than not, sometimes right. we'll have to tweak it a little bit. Right. And then, you know, and then they can sort of, so rewrite the fight is a powerful way to apply the horizon technique. I think that, you know, using all three pieces of like below on above the horizon might be too many steps for two people in an argument because it's just a lot, you know, maybe in writing as a academic exercise would be, would be interesting, but in a rewrite the fight is a little more concise. It's sort of like, well, we already know the below the horizon version of your fight because that's why you're here to talk about it. Right. Um, let's just jump right ahead to like the, the right. more productive version right. of this argument. Right. And it's so um, enlightening and so gratifying to see couples eyes light up to say like, you mean, I don't have to sacrifice my perspective, my feelings, my opinion in order to feel connected to this person. I can still love them. I can feel accepted by them. I can, we can share and we can agree to disagree, or we can even come to some sort of meeting of the minds. If we learn how to express and communicate, articulate uh, and feel things in a way that holds space for their reality too. It's, it's a really, really enjoyable work. Wow. So this is like, it's a powerful tool. Do you go through the day constantly measuring your horizon? Like when, when someone cuts you off in line in, in a store, you're like, okay, horizon, da, 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 da. where is it holding? Recalibrating. Is that how your brain works now? Sometimes, sometimes it depends on my mood. You know, you, you, you know, this, you know, just because we know something doesn't mean we're always going to practice it. You know, <laughs> I, I know the healthy foods to eat, but I don't know it's good. <laughs> right. You know, so I, I do, I try. I try, I try to be very tuned in and very aware to my, to my thoughts and my emotional state, but sometimes it's okay to just be in flow mode and have my imperfect personality. Um, especially if it's just me, like if I'm alone in a store and I'm having, I'm letting my thoughts meander, I'm not like sort of like the thought police where I don't let myself have any like negative or a judgmental or, or thought, you know, sometimes I'll catch myself if I don't like the way it feels, but I try to save it for when it's really important. Let's say an interpersonal react interactions, you know, relationships. Um, when I'm meditating or praying, when I'm uh, when I'm working with clients, you know, when the when the words and the behaviors really really matter, because we don't want to sort of micromanage every little thought. You don't want to become obsessional about it. Right. Um, but yeah, it's it's really a great tool. You know, so when when somebody does cut me off, you know, I, I definitely am someone that is wired for a quick temper, and I've worked on it a lot over the years, and uh, it really is something that's helped me because I can say to myself, look, if somebody did something that was I believe to be wrong, right? I, I said that my parents used to call me the walking superego, like I couldn't handle it. <laughs> If someone did the wrong thing, you know? Right. So, you know, so either it's worth saying something like, oh, I don't know if you noticed I was here on the line, it's, well, the end right. of the line is over there, right. Right? and I could just politely do it. And right. I've been known to do that to the degree very close to my children, right? but I can do it respectfully. <laughs> um, you know, but if it's a little old man or if it's just right. not worth it or I've got right. the time or they just have one item, you know, so right. I sort of work on my humility and sort of say, you know what, I, I can be right, but I don't always have to like, you know, broadcast it. <laughs> right, right. And then it's an opportunity to work on myself, you know, in, in a more sort of like spiritual way rather than intellectual, you know. And I think it also depends on where we're holding in our own personal horizon, not situational horizon, because we have a personal horizon in our being. I, I think my horizon last week was depleted. I, w- I was, a, I had a very hard week last week and I was depleted and I, sh- I showed up really 
terribly in different relationships, which I felt really bad about, but I was aware of it. And at that moment, I remember saying, I know what the right thing is to do. And I know what will lead me to wellness faster. But right now, I just want to be angry, upset, disappointed, mad. I don't want to put that perfection cap on. Not yet. And just noticing it was not judging myself of like, oh, you know the tools to get there fast. Just do it. I I gave myself permission to just feel and say, okay, I'm below the horizon. I had a hard week. I'm allowed to stay here for a little bit before I can rise up and be that eagle and the seagull in the sky that's that's above the horizon. And I don't know I'm going to get there, but also verbalizing it to ourselves and to the people around us to say, you know what? I'm depleted now. I don't want to dig down into my courage now. I'm I'm just too tired. Let's do this tomorrow. And And I noticed that in myself last week that my horizon was, I was below the horizon with everything and I wasn't showing up properly with to myself to others and giving me my myself the okay to not be perfect was exactly what i needed in order to be okay a day later it's a very deep thing that you're saying because you're you're actually illustrating the an, an example where negative emotion can be the healthy choice right right like what we said before like crying at a funeral is appropriate even though crying all day every day would be unhealthy Right. Right. So I don't know the stressors that were going on in your week, particularly that week. But if you felt by making a an immature and uh, empowered decision, hey, you know what? I am depleted right now, and I think my version of self care right now allows myself to go through the process of feeling those negative feelings. As long as I'm not acting out in a way that's you know really harmful or abusive to the people that I love, right? It's okay for me to not show up 100%. That perfectionism could be very toxic too. So if you've developed the healthiness to be able to say to your to your loved ones, to the people who rely on you, hey guys, you know what? I'm not in a great place. The same way you would if you had the flu, right? If you weren't feeling well physically, you would say, you know what? Part of being a healthy person means I have to engage in a little bit of self-care, whatever that looks like for you. Sometimes mm-hmm. self-care is like the more cliched, you mentioned this on social media the other right. day, right? The more right. sort of like typical things of how we take care of our bodies and our spirits. Right. And sometimes self-care, it means like I need to indulge in a little bit of wallowing so right. I can sort of clean out my filter and get back to being my smiley, grateful, Matana self, you know? <laughs> right, right, right. And be okay yeah. with not being okay. And I was told, and I was very verbal about it every so day. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. And also for myself, to allow yeah. myself, like say, Create this the is context. the time. Yeah. And yeah. I remember I, at my um, nightly gratitude that I was doing, I wrote that I, my boundaries were terrible. My boundaries were horrible, but, I, but it's okay. And I'm gifting it to myself today. And hopefully when I'm stronger in a, in a day or two or a week or two, and I come to clarity to what happened, I'll be able to implement better boundaries that it won't happen again in the future. So I'm not seeing it as a negative. It's actually a learning experience for me. Yes, my boundaries were horrible today. And I'm going to take it to the next level next time when I have the ability to process it. I don't have the ability now, so I'm not going there. And I think it's important to know where we're holding in our personal horizon versus situational horizon. It's specific. Yes, because it's an interplay, you know, it's relationships. And they say failure is one of the best teachers. Right. I heard a really cute quote. I wish I could remember who said this, but I saw, it was like kind of on a meme. It said something like, I don't fail. I either succeed or I learn something. 
Nice. <laughs> yes, yes. We only fail if we don't learn from it. Right. Um, we exactly. have to write, wrap up, but I want to, sure. um, there was something that I wanted to ask you as someone that works with couples and someone that's very sensitive to um, mental health awareness. What do you tell couples that are supporting each other? One is depleted in mental illness, is struggling, and they didn't come into the relationship in this situation. It's a situation that was born th- in, with with marriage. And it could be a loss. It could be a tragedy. It could be losing a job. It could be just hormonal. It could be postpartum. It could be losing uh, a miscarriage, anything, right? It, it could be also in the male side, not just the female. And one is severely stuck in the mental health, in the mental illness mode. The person that's supporting is getting depleted and losing interest in supporting because they they lost the loved one that they knew because this person with mental illness is not the person they married. How do we stay connected when we're so disconnected? It's such an important question. And I think one of the reasons it's so difficult to answer is because it would be so nice if we could have sort of a packageable answer that's going to be true for every couple that meets that description. But the same way when you ask that question of, you know, what do you do for self-care? And you've got probably 30, 40 different answers from people who Mm. all need to take care of ourselves, but just it's going to look differently for each person depending on their psychological, emotional needs. Right. And I think a couple is the same thing. So even more so because you have two different sets of, of personalities and, and dynamics at play. So there are sort of like three, three areas that have to be examined in a situation like that. There are the needs of what we call the IP, the identified patient, right? The person who is stuck in, in, a, in, a, in a sea of, of mental illness. Then there are the equally important needs of the, of the partner, right? The person who doesn't have an, a, a diagnosis per se, but also has legitimate feelings and needs and, and, uh, and, and wants in a relationship, right? And then there's a third category, which is their joint responsibilities, Right. So they're there. You said they already got married. They're probably sharing a home, a life. Maybe they have children. Maybe they have parents that they take care of, you know, finances. And so each of those areas really needs Mm. to be attended to and not neglected. And so if they can do that as a couple, that's great. If one of them is really debilitated from mental illness, they're going to probably need a third party to help them, whether it's a therapist or a mentor or someone who's been through it. Mm. Um, And to really sort of like get organized so that not one of those, you know, it's like it's a picture a stool that has three legs. Like if one of those legs gets shaky, then then the stool is going to sort of topple over. And so there's a huge difference between someone who is drowning in mental mental illness to the point where they're unstable and unwilling to try to get help versus mm-hmm. someone who, like you described before, is very self-aware, mm-hmm. right? And either is ready to get help or knows that they're not ready to get help, but has a plan for eventually right. trying to get help, right? Right. So I think that if the person, the, the healthier party sees that their partner really does want to get better, so then, then it's more of a clear a vision of what they're yeah. supposed to do, right? Network and get them the right help and, and show up to therapy there's hope. with them. There's, there's hope. hope. Exactly. Right, right. And the right. other one. When they're, right. When there's not, yeah. so then, then it becomes, I think, really important for the more functional. Because really then what you're asking is, how do we stay a functional couple when one of us is now functioning? Exactly. Right? Which, is, exactly. which is a very challenging thing to do, right. right? And so the solution is going to look very different based on the dynamics, right? What are the resources in this relationship, even given the level of dysfunction of the person who's suffering, right? Mm-hmm. Sometimes because everybody's dysfunction has differences, right? Or mm-hmm. if the person is, let's say, at, at harm to themselves, right? If they're mm-hmm. if they're cutting or starving or the, right? 
right? So then the loving other partner doesn't really have the luxury to live and let live, right? If you really love their partner, they might say like, you know what, I I, I love you and I don't want to override your your self-determination, but I can't let you destroy your life, right? right? And they may not need to take more more dramatic action, right? Which, you know, I don't envy someone who has to make that decision. They need a lot of of hand-holding and guidance, professional guidance, right? But if we're talking about someone who is essentially stable day to day, Right, but they're just like not functioning well. So mm-hmm. I, I would my recommendation to the to the more stable spouse, to the more functional spouse, is to say get yourself support because what you're going to need to take care of you and to try to do whatever you can to either mobilize or protect, like boundary yourself from the pathology in your home is something that's going to be specific to whatever's manifesting in the symptoms of your of your partner, as well as what your triggers are as the as the secondary sort of victim of, of the situation. And so so you know that is going to be different per couple and per individual. But generally, uh, you know, if, if, the, if there is love and there is commitment, then I think that there are things that can be done even just on the part of the more functional spouse to sort of like keep the relationship afloat until such time as the, as the sicker party is able or willing to, to take the moves, that they, to make the moves that they need to get better. And I think it's important to use the horizon here to say, okay, where am I in this relationship? Am I below the horizon? Am I floating? Am I above? And if yeah. you're below, get support. That means like... Sure you really need the support to to start elevating yourself for for the for the sake of the marriage of the unity of the of of going long term yeah especially if there are shared responsibilities you know the home the finances if there are children or elderly mm-hmm. parents or or jobs that you know where one party is going to be heavily burdened by the other one's not inability to show up in in their lives they right. actually need a lot of support not just professional but social communal right Right. Uh, maybe family too. Yeah. Right. Sometimes it could be just emotional support that they're not getting from the other one or they're just, it doesn't have to be the financial. So yeah. 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 It could be just a, an emotional need to connect to somebody that's not depressed, you know, sure. <laughs> just, but that's just, easier to substitute in a way. You know what I mean? Like people can turn towards family and friends and other other people who can be there for them at the time that their loved one is suffering too much to be able to support them. That's true. That's true. Thank you for that. By the way, very similar answer to that Dr. Pelkovitz gave me. Very similar. Really? Yes. Yes. I take that as a compliment. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So before we go, I want to ask you, what does hope mean to you? The word hope. The word hope. I guess hope would be the belief in the possibility of something better in the future. Um, you and I both speak Hebrew, and uh, the biblical Hebrew word for hope is kaveh. It's from the root of the word kav. Kav means a line. So hope is sort of like a line, you know, in, in geometry, a line is something that doesn't have like a beginning or an end. It just keeps going. Nice. Right. Nice. And so the idea that hope means like being able to look across that line, like the line of the horizon and say, we can keep going. We can keep going. Right. right. It might be hard, but we can keep going. We'll get there. I like that. I like that. So find Elisheva's book. It's such an easy read and such a powerful tool. Find your horizon of healthy thinking on Amazon. You can find the show and show notes. We're going to have a link to it. And Two minutes. Can you tell me about the new course you're doing on um, sex ed for children? Sure. So the, my new digital course is called Sacred Not Secret, A Religious Family's Guide to Healthy Holy Sexuality Education. Because of the work that I do with couples, I've learned that one area that's really lacking in, in otherwise wonderful parenting frameworks is sometimes sexuality education. And that is something that can affect relationships in a very, very significant way. And so while there is some material available out there for parents, 
parents who are looking to educate their children, there was a real lack of anything that was sensitive to the needs of people of faith. And so uh, while I, I, I hope that the material that I created, the content that I came up with is something that would be helpful to any family, it is specifically directed to families who want to give over certain traditional values about relationships and sexuality, but in a very honest, open, accurate kinds of way. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I actually, um, I actually, I, I thank you, Matana, because you introduced me to Heather and uh, mm-hmm. Heather Parody, who, who, uh, who connected me with Thinkific. And that's where I launched my first course, which is a private practice pro tips for therapists on building a private practice. And then the sacred, not secret course. And I am looking towards, because um, there's been some interest in a Horizon of Healthy Thinking digital course, which would be mm-hmm. similar to the to the, the contents of the book, but more in sort of a, a video course format. So I'm hoping by the time you launch this, uh, that'll be something that's in the works. I really think it's necessary because sometimes you just, I know with Brene Brown, when she wrote about something and then she put it into practice and she'll say, okay, this is how you work, A, B, C. And it's just so easy to process and put it into action. So I hope you really come out with that course because it will be really helpful to this book and we can implement it in so many areas of our life. It's like our little therapist coming along with us in our in our pocketbook, you know? So it will be a great tool to have. And it's, I, I highly recommend this book to anyone. Alisheva, thank you. Thank you for your time. You know, every moment with you for me is a treasure. And I really <laughs> appreciate your time and um, your knowledge and your sharing and you're constantly sharing and you're constantly evolving with us, with life. So thank you for being so open and so real and so giving. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Alisheva. Is there anything else you want to say before we say goodbye to our audience? Just thank you so much for having me. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. You're so full of good energy, Matana. And um, thank you so much for, for this interview. Thank you. Hope you you take this tool for life. If you have any questions, um, you can research Elisheva. Elisheva, you have a website, right? Yes, elishevalist.com. And I also blog on nefesh.org, but elishevalist.com is my is my main website. Okay. And everything's going to be in the show notes. So you don't have to remember. And if you need couples therapy, she is the pro, the pro. And don't become her friend because then you will never be able to access her therapy. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, thanks everybody for listening. Bye till next time. Thank you for joining us and taking the time to listen. I really appreciate it. Please hit the subscribe button so you can hear further episodes. If you are listening to us on iTunes, please leave feedback and ratings below. Let us know if there's any topic that you would like to hear from us in the future. Bye till next time.